Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 31. And while you're turning there, I'll just notice that we didn't pass out the plates at normally like we do at communion for our, an offering, but you're more than able to put your offering in the box back in the foyer or send it via one of those wonderful QR codes that we like to use around here. Uh, so just to note that. But Mark chapter 14 is where we'll be reading from this morning. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you follow along, we should be able to finish the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16, on Easter Sunday. So as you anticipate cel- the celebration of Easter, we are following along in Mark's account of even the last days of the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. However, not the last days of Jesus, since he is still, as we have just sung, alive right now. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 10, and this is the word of the Lord. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Holy God, as we stand before your purity and majesty, all of us are unmasked. We are laid bare before your eyes. All hypocrisy, all falsehood, all double dealing and double lives are all exposed to you. And so we come to you with that recognition that you see all and know all. And Lord, I pray through your word this morning that you would expose us and that in that exposure we would flee to Christ to be clothed in his righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would help us in these days, even these days of trial and sorrow. We pray for the Vargas family and for Corolla especially and for the loss of her mother. We just pray that you would comfort that family. We pray for many people here who are mourning, if not losses of family members, then mourning the poor health of family members, the limitations, the pain, the suffering, the lost opportunity, the lost vigor of life in others, or lamenting it in themselves. Many here are filled with sorrow, but you are in fact the God of all comfort. We pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted this morning. That you would give them that kind of comfort that can only come from you and not from the world. Lord, as we are laid bare before you, as we are dealing in life and death and eternal life and eternal damnation, Lord, we ask that as we consider your word, you would do something in each of us that only you can do. That you would exegete us. That you would open us up, unpack us, lay us bare, 
and explain us. And in that moment of truth, the hour of decision, O Lord, I pray according to your mercy that all here would flee to you and that those who refuse, that it would be clear that they never knew you. We pray that your great dividing line would come down amongst us, even today. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would wound and you would heal. Come and do this, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure all of you have seen the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci, although whether it's by da Vinci or by others after him, but Leonardo da Vinci called The Last Supper, that long horizontal table where there are these 12 guys there all spread across the table. And this long, narrow table, very unlike it would have been in the first century when everybody's actually, you know, leaning on their elbow on couches. But nevertheless, it's a very famous painting. And if you're familiar with the painting, with the picture of Jesus in the middle of it, you know who the bad guy is right away. It's very obvious. All of the figures of all of the twelve are all bright, bright colors and bright clothes. And then there's one guy that's completely shrouded in shadow. Well, who's that? Judas, right? You know who Judas is. He's the villain of the story. And that's the problem with depictions of Jesus and depictions of these things in the Bible in art, although sometimes they can be helpful, very often they are obscuring. Because at that time, it would not have occurred to anybody that Judas would be the betrayer. In fact, of course, Judas, we know from John 12, 6, Judas held the money bag. Now, chances are, if you're in the finance industry, although they maybe have a bit of a bad reputation now, generally speaking, if you're in dealing with money, if you're an accountant, your whole business is based on being trustworthy. So the fact that of all the guys that were there, Judas was the one that they entrusted with the money bag, you know, the the money for the group, to buy food and keep everybody going. Well, of all the guys, he's got to be the most trustworthy. So he is the least likely candidate to betray Jesus. And that's where pictures like the Last Supper, don't really do justice to the truth. And yet, Judas, not only was he shrouded in darkness, we know from John 12 that he was actually found out later to have been a thief. 
And he had been stealing from the money bag. Well, in Mark chapter 14, we are introduced to what I would say are two betrayals. One that was planned, the other that was predicted. And in between these two betrayals is this supper of our Savior. Now, as we begin, as we, we look at this passage, we begin then in verse 10, speaking of this Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests, and what does it say? In order to betray him to them. This is what we would call premeditation. Jesus, Judas had a plan to betray Jesus. We are re- what's revealed here are even Judas's personal motives. He wanted to betray Jesus. So he had a plan. Judas planned to betray Jesus, and he went to people who were also planning to betray Jesus. We find that out as we saw last time earlier in chapter 14, in verse 2. They were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They were planning to. It's interesting when when your personal motives are sinful, it's amazing how quickly you can find other people who have the same sinful motives. They come out of the woodwork. You find them. If you want to sin, there's lots of people that will sin with you. They like it. They're happy. They want you. They want to be your friend. They want to do stuff with you. Because they want to sin with you. Even we have an example in the Bible in Luke Luke 23, Pilate and Herod, these two guys that hated each other, we are told they became friends over the prosecution of Jesus. Let's kill Jesus. Let's let's have a verdict against him. Oh, you want to do that too? Oh, I like you now. Now what's remarkable about this story and what goes against these paintings and depictions of Judas is that Judas had been chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve. He's not like Pilate. He's not like Herod. He's one of Jesus' guys. John chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now this didn't mean that Jesus was a fool. But what Jesus was showing 
was that even for Judas, with all of this special attention, with all of these privileges, with all of these things, nevertheless, there are people who would rather turn away from the Lord. And we have key examples of that in the Scriptures. Think about Adam in the garden. Adam had it all. He had it all. Special attention. Special privileges. And yet he turns from the Lord and instead is going to listen to the serpent and to another creature, even his wife, rather than the Lord. Or think of Israel. Israel through its history, but particularly in the land of Canaan. What is the history of Israel in the land of Canaan? Special attention, great privileges. And what did Israel do? Went after idols, went after false gods. And so Judas, I believe, has shown himself to be an emblem of fallen Adam and apostate Israel. He's certainly putting that on display. Now, this is what we have, this plan to betray Jesus. He sought an opportunity. It's amazing. If you decide you want to sin, it's amazing how you will seek an opportunity to sin. You will Craft your life in such a way so that you've got an opportunity to sin. And that's exactly what Judas did. So we have this this context of betrayal, but it's also a context of the Passover. The Passover. So we're told in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, you may know that the Passover was then a a feast or a festival that comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Exodus chapter 12. And so in anticipation of the Exodus of the Jews being delivered out of Egypt by God, there was nevertheless this this major event where God promised to judge all of the firstborn of Egypt. It was a great judgment. And he made this threat to Pharaoh. God told Pharaoh through Moses, he said, let my people go or else, Pharaoh, you're going to lose your heir. You're going to lose your prince. You're going to lose your firstborn. And by the way, you're going to lose all the firstborn of every creature throughout Egypt. All he had to do was let him go. And yet Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see, Pharaoh, even influenced by the activity of Satan, had had then a plan of exterminating the Jews, and particularly trying to exterminate the Messianic line coming from the Jews. You remember that Moses, 
Moses escaped out of the river, even though there was an edict that all of the sons of the Jews were to be killed. Satan wanted to snuff out the messianic line, and so God judges Pharaoh in the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, then there is then this anticipation that blood needed to be shed by a lamb, and the blood, of course, was put on the doorpost, the doorway of the Jewish home, in order that then this this judgment of God, this angel of vengeance, would then pass over that home. It would pass over where the blood was shed. And so then that Passover in itself became a deliverance from the domain of darkness in Egypt to the light of God's glory and His glory cloud and pillar of fire in the wilderness. But the key is, when we think about the Passover, it is a deliverance by the shedding of blood. The lamb slain and the blood put on the doorpost of the house was protecting then that Jewish biological family. And it becomes then the typological basis, this this analogy or this, this pointer toward the shed blood of Jesus Christ that protects the spiritual family. All those the spiritual family, all all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone by faith, whether it's men, whether it's women, whether it's moms, whether it's dads, whether it's boys, whether it's girls. All who trust in Jesus Christ are part then of that, that new spiritual family in Christ, but it is based on this passing over template, as it were, is provided in the Passover. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. So this, this now in Mark 14 is prior to Christ's death. So Jesus is still celebrating the old covenant Passover. But that is then what's going on in terms of his person and work. Now, it's interesting in verses 12 through 16, it's almost easy to pass over this in a cursory manner simply because all that's happening is you've got the disciples going based on Jesus' instructions and getting the upper room ready so that they can all sit down and eat and have the Passover meal. So it's like, get, get this stuff ready, guys. But of course... It's never quite like that because Jesus gives detailed instructions about, you know, there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. He's going to meet you and he's going to have this house. And then you're just going to say, yeah, you got, you got the place ready that the teacher wants? He's got, yeah, it's, it's ready. You know, like it's, it's all these little prophecies that we don't even hardly notice. And verse 16 the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. It's, it's, it's just a throwaway line. You skip right over it. And yet Jesus tells them about things that are going to happen in the future and they come true because he's the true prophet. It's just a, just a simple little thing in the midst of this. 
But Jesus, even as he is, he is preparing then this Passover, he is then coming to fulfill what John the Baptist has said about him, that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is still on that mission to be the Lamb of God. And yet, just as Satan attacked the Messianic line through Pharaoh in Exodus 1, he renews the, the Satanic attack via Judas because we are told in Luke 22, verse 3, that Satan entered the heart of Judas. What a scary prospect. What a scary prospect that you could be someone so close to Jesus, so close to followers of Jesus, hanging around people who follow Jesus, talking about the stuff that Jesus talks about, being around those people all the time. That's your environment. And yet, you are not believing in Christ yourself, and you're absolutely open to the fact that Satan would enter you. There are people here, there are people here who are accustomed to now being around other people in this church who can talk about the Jesus stuff, who maybe even like some of the Jesus stuff, but they refuse to lay themselves with open, bare exposure to Jesus and to all and lay it bare and follow Christ exclusively in love, in faith, in obedience. And oh, what then a chilling, terrifying thing that you can have be so close to Jesus and yet be Satan's, belong to the Father of lies, to belong to Him. And so that's, that's then the context here is, that, is we've got this Passover being celebrated and even the remembrance of that amazing deliverance that God wrought and the blood shed, it's all put together there. And then it says, verse 17, When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to, one, say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? You know, it's one of the things I've seen over the years. It's that myself and yourselves, left without the illumination of the Holy Spirit and and the clarity of God's word, doesn't matter who you are, we are strangers to ourselves. We are strangers to ourselves. And that is why we need Jesus to interpret us. 
We need you. Let's switch it. You need Jesus to interpret you. Don't you interpret yourself based on, well, this is my preference, sexually or otherwise. You don't know yourself. You don't understand yourself. We are strangers to ourselves. We need Jesus to interpret us. He must tell us the good, the bad, and the ugly. He must tell us. His Word explains us. And that's why they come to Him. And they say, is it I? I don't know. I, I don't know. Am I the betrayer? I, I'm not sure. I, is it me? Because they didn't know themselves. But Jesus knew them. He knew them exactly. James 1.14 says, speaking of desire, that when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings what? Death. Jesus is the one who must explain us, either explaining us and interpreting us, even by, either by His word of judgment or His words of life. We need Him to explain us and interpret us. And here is the supreme example. He's saying, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. How is this possible? Well, it is because, as I just read from James, it is because of the deceit of sin. Sin is deceitful. It promises beauty and love and wonder and success and all good things. It promises all that, and it's all lies. It's all lies. It's all fake. It's all phony. It's all a trick. Think for yourself. You know how it is. You've plotted, you've planned. You, what, I mean, not, you're, all this is in your head. You're not telling anybody about this. But you've planned on the ways that you're going to sin. You've plotted it. You've thought of it. And you go ahead and sin. And afterwards, it didn't quite satisfy. It didn't quite do the trick. Because the sin is a lie. It's a lie. It can't, it can't satisfy. But you still want it. You'd rather have the lie than live for the truth. Now, Jesus then says, in verse 20, He said to them, It is one of the twelve... Again, his guys. One of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus is return, he's referring to Psalm 41 verse 9, and just this, this thought 
that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's what Psalm 41.9 says. So Jesus is seeing Psalm 41.9 fulfilled in real time as he knows he's going to be betrayed by his close friend. Not just an acquaintance, a close friend. But woe be upon that person, woe be upon Judas in this instance. Now, we have then what we just celebrated, right? We have then the Lord's Supper. You might even have the heading in your Bibles before verse 22, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Supper of the Savior in verses 22 through 25. And this I found, again, over the years, I've seen so much confusion about the Lord's Supper amongst people who say or think they're Christians. Because some people think, if I, come, if I, if I show up at church, if I visit a church, all i got to do is have some of the magic bread and have some of the magic juice, and then I'm good. I'm good with God. That's all I need. So don't have really anything to do with Jesus, but, oh, I, I'll get some of the magic food over here, and I'm good to go. And that might, I can guarantee, I know it's some of you here. But the Lord's Supper, we see then in this context, was instituted by Jesus himself in this wider context of eating, not only his last supper, but this Passover Seder meal. Now, just to say, there is no requirement, there is no extra benefit in performing a Seder Passover meal. Um, I remember being told about one Jewish family and the extent to which their Seder meal was the dad would tell a Seder joke and that was it. There was no, they didn't do anything else. I don't, I don't think he believed in God actually. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's one way of doing the Seder meal. But the Lord's Supper in one sense and as we've just celebrated, it's really not much of a supper, isn't it? I mean, you're not, you know, you're still hungry. You're wondering, when's Clint going to be done? Because I want to go to lunch. Right? But the point is, and this is, this is actually what, what Jesus is doing. You notice he says, as they were eating. So it's in, the, in a context where they're eating. It's not, it's not all of the eating. As they're eating, he took bread. So you can say this kind of like a subset of this wider meal that was being celebrated. So the Lord's Supper is not really a supper so much, but it was taking these symbolic tokens, the tokens of the bread, and one of the four cups of the Passover, and these were taking as symbols. Now, there was often a feast that accompanied it, It was sometimes called the love feast, as it's referred to in Jude. And and so there could be that accompanying it. But the concern there was, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where Paul was reading, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 11, that then people ought not to be greedy at the potluck. You know, if if you're hungry and you shouldn't pig out and eat at the potluck, so there's nothing left for the poor people. 
And I'll be honest, sometimes at the potluck, if I'm the last one to eat, I know there's nothing left. Many times. Like, I gotta get in line earlier. Not saying you're greedy, I'm just saying everybody likes a good potluck. But that's why you need to narrow your focus to what is going on in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, and what He is doing here. So as we know, there are two elements and two declarations. And that's, that's kind of what they, they remain with this practice that he commanded. Of course, the two elements, there's bread to eat and there's a cup to drink. And then there's these two declarations that Paul just led us through. Take, this is my body, referring to the bread, and this is my Blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, referring to the cup in verse 24. This, is, this will be referred to as the cup of the new covenant, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11. So these, these are symbols, though. These are symbols. It's like when Jesus in John 10 said, I am the door. Well, he's not saying, I'm made of wood. You know, or he's saying, I am the light. Well, he's not saying, you know, I'm, I'm made up of waves and particles rather than flesh and blood. Or, or he could say, I am the living bread, which is like an oxymoron. It's bread, bread is inanimate. Bread's not alive. So it's, he's speaking symbolically even in John 6. This is very simple to recognize that he's speaking a symbol. That's what he's referring to. And people get this very confused. Now, although this is a symbolic meal, everybody here is confused and cluttered by some bad views about the Lord's Supper. And I'm just going to just mention a couple before we get into further about the Supper. But often the, the, the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist. And you may or may not know what that comes from. It's simply to give thanks. I give thanks. Eucharistio, it's a Greek word. And so insofar as you like to call it the Eucharist, you can call it that. Depends on what other baggage you're adding to that. It's, obvious, it's called in the Roman Catholic Church, the Mass. Now, it all depends on then what this language is doing, when it, what, is it, what is it investing in the supper and the different theologies connected to it. So, for example, the Roman Catholic Mass is the most, I'll say, infamous one because it's the belief that the bread, this literal bread, is transformed or transubstantiated into the literal physical body of Jesus. And so the Mass is a re-sacrificing of Christ. That's why, actually, Lutheran churches, Roman Catholic churches have, what's this called? An altar. Why do you need an altar? Because you're making a sacrifice. Oh, but I thought Jesus died as a sacrifice once for all. This is why we put the pulpit in front of the altar. And why we're not 
doing any sacrificing up here, and we put the stuff over there. You're saying, well, how come you're not using the beautiful altar? Well, I like the, I like the wooden piece, but I'm not treating it like an altar. We don't treat it like an altar. It's a beautiful piece of woodwork. But it's not... A, if, you're a, if you're in Jesus Christ, you have access, direct access to God. You don't got to go through a priest. And so the Mass as a re-sacrificing of Christ, it also has the ingestion of the bread as a re-receiving of the literal body of Christ in your mouth, down your throat. And I've heard, I've heard Roman Catholics describe it in those terms. And the appeal of the Roman Catholic view it is that it is very experiential. It's also, it, it, it looks at the physicality of the bread and of the wine or whatever it is, probably wine in the, in the cup, and then the imagination that it requires to think that Jesus' literal flesh is going into your stomach. So people, some people just love that stuff. It's very appealing. You maybe saw the scene in the Luther movie. The, the newer one, which illustrates the problem. Luther, as a Roman Catholic monk, he's leading his first Mass. You maybe saw the scene. He's leading his first Mass as a, as a Catholic monk, and he's petrified because he's holding up this cup with this wine in it, and his hands are shaking because he's got the literal blood of Christ in there, and of course he spills it. And the same thing that the medieval Catholic theologians would wrestle with. What I mean, it was a serious problem. What happens if a crumb from the transformed bread falls to the ground and a mouse eats the literal flesh of Jesus? What do you do? Like, what is that mouse then sanctified? Like, what do we go dig it out? Like, I don't know. What, what do you do with the, what do you do with that bread? Now, Luther himself had a slightly different view. I won't get into consubstantiation, but it's, I, I believe it's of a piece with the Roman Catholic view. It's not different enough. There's also, some will say, and actually Paul kind of mentioned it, some will say that the supper is only a memorial. It's a memorial of these things after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Now, certainly the early church, through the early church history, there was a strong belief that it was a memorial. The question is, is it only a memorial? 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us, do this. Why? In remembrance of me. So we are to remember, but is that all? Well, no, it's not all. Um, Jesus wants our spiritual communion with him in the practice of eating this real little meal. Now the key pronouns in in our passage take this is my body. It is my blood. Those are the pronouns. It's that's the point. You are spiritually communing 
with Jesus. When you obey the Lord, and when you remember the Lord in His person and work and His present reign, you enjoy His grace and the filling of the Spirit. Because you can't do anything without His Spirit. So you're remembering and you're believing and you're obeying must be because God is at work in you with gracious, gracious givings towards you, even the filling of, of His Spirit in you. So yes, it is a spiritual communing. But it is through faith and obedience. That's what we do. It We do it by believing. And so by faith we understand that Jesus is has symbolically represented himself to us in the bread and the cup. The elements are symbols. The reality is the living Christ. For these guys who are eating with him in Mark 14, right in front of him, but for those who came after Jesus rose from the dead, the living Christ who is even unseen. That's the reality. The one risen, ascended, and returning. So even in the remembering, if it is done in faith and there is obedience to Christ, there's trusting in Him in that obedience, there then is a real spiritual communion with the living Christ by His Spirit within us. And that is the so-called Reformed view, which has its pedigree going back into the early church and, I believe, back into the Bible itself. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And as DJ prayed in his prayer during our communion service, man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus responded to Satan, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live symbolically by the bread of life, by the bread of His Word. We live and feast on the Word of Christ. And so, as we trust His Word, as I said before, Jesus' interpretation is His Word. And notice, I'll just say in Mark 14, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing and he broke it and gave it to them and he said, take this is my body. He said, this is my blood. He's giving an interpretation. My sons and I were talking about Luther and Luther saying, is is is. Meaning it must be literal. No, no, this is is it's actually Jesus giving an interpretive word that's what we trust in we trust in his interpretive word explaining what is going on here and then Luke 24 after Jesus rose from the dead on the road to Emmaus he was known to them in the breaking of bread and in John 21 after he is risen from the dead he said one of the funniest lines in the New Testament. He said, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. The risen Christ. Oh, he's too holy for that. No, he's like, the barbecue's on. Come and have breakfast. Come and eat with me. 
the risen Christ, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. This is then what's going on. Jesus then would eat and drink the fruit of the vine in the kingdom, which means after his resurrection and he, he feasts with his, with his disciples. He feasts with them together, but it's because he's risen from the dead. And yet, we can't get away from this second betrayal. Not the betrayal planned, but a betrayal predicted. The other betrayal, it's not called a betrayal, but it was, it was a denial. It wasn't premeditated, but it was anticipated. How many times have you looked back after you've sinned and you've thought, didn't plan to do that. I didn't plan to do that, but you did. You didn't plan to do it, but you did. Peter had no plan to betray Jesus. Unlike Judas, Judas had plotted a way to betray him. But Jesus' prediction, we are told, verse 27, after they'd sung the hymn at the Mount of Olives, you will all fall away. He predicted that, Mark 14, 27. That was his prediction. He also predicted his resurrection. Verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He predicted both. The first prediction fulfilled Scripture. Zechariah chapter uh, 13, which is very apocalyptic. I will strike the shepherd... And the sheep might scatter. No, they will scatter. And that's exactly what they did. And yet he could plan not only the rise from the dead. I'm going to tell you actually where I'm going to be. I'm going to go to Galilee. I'm going to be there. And come hang out together. So real. But of course, verse 29, what's Peter's response? And Peter always is just a proxy for what everybody else was thinking. Peter promised to be faithful to Jesus. You know, he, he says it there. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus, your interpretation of things, it's not, it's not going to happen. You don't know what you're talking about. I will never fall away. Have you been doing that this week? You won't accept Jesus' interpretation of your reality? And say, no, I'm, I, 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 it's not going to work out that way for me. I can handle this. I can handle it, Jesus. Peter, yeah, I got it under control. Well, you don't. He doesn't have a clue. Jesus knew Peter's heart, and he knew the future. Peter was going to deny Jesus, not once, but three times, and Jesus predicted his betrayal. And this is because Jesus, of course, he could predict the future because he was the Messiah, anointed by the Holy Spirit, but also because he was God who created time, God the Son incarnate. He created time. And Peter, he's got Jesus right there. Peter has too high a view of his own abilities. And so he gave himself over to his fears and his insecurities. And Jesus said, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows crows twice, you will deny me three times. And at that point, Peter is so insecure, he's almost boastful. 
You've done this. I've done this. You're so insecure that someone might think that you're weak or that you might fail that you'll boast about how you'll come through for them. You'll boast how you'll come through for God. And he says, you know, Peter said, verse 31, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Nobody wants to let people down. We don't want to fail people. So we make promises with our lips that our hearts can't keep. We fail to see how sin can deceive us. And not only that, not just failing people, but we try to play games with God. So we forget to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We think, oh, I don't really need to pray that. I'm okay. I've got it under control. Instead of, oh, help me, Lord. Help me. I don't even know what I don't know. I don't even know how bad I could be. We aren't on guard. And so we get surprised when we fall into sin. I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe this happened. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I've done this. We're surprised. But we aren't on guard. And our carelessness then speaks louder than all of our protests of innocence. Of course, Peter needed then to be restored later on in John 21 and verse 15 and following. But consider this at this point. At this point in Mark 14, and I'm almost done, Peter and Judas, Peter and Judas would have looked exactly alike in their betrayals at that moment. They're both part of the twelve they would have it looked exactly alike. One turned away from him and forsook Christ, and the other turned to him and will never be forsaken. Do you see how close you are to the precipice of either heaven or hell? Like then, you might be at a crossroads following, or forsaking, rejecting Him, or receiving Him, loving Him, or leaving Him, caring what Jesus thinks about you, or caring less what Jesus thinks about you. And so what will it be? What's it going to be for you? I'll close by saying this. By way of summary, the Lord's Supper and baptism are of the essence of Christianity. Memory, obedience, faith, and repentance, even for all of our betrayals and denials, these are features all around the Lord's Supper. But we commune with Christ not by the materials, but by the Spirit and by faith working in love. That is what we need but we need to look to Jesus Christ. Do not presume. Because if there's anything this passage shows us, Jesus sees right through your presumption. He exposes it, and he can interpret you right down to your toes. Trust his interpretation and ask him for mercy.
Father, forgive me. In Jesus' name, make that your prayer. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray that you would cause a deep moment of realism, even a profound moment to occur right now by your Spirit, as there would be true ownership of our sin before you and a turning to you rather than a turning away from you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Please stand. The Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 3 after the section that Pastor Paul just read for us before the service. He, he prays and prays that those who believe may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Will you actually seek Him and His fullness or will you go your own way? That is the decision before you today. May you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Go in peace. You're dismissed.